0: hello and welcome to another episode of climbing on the bookshelf a short-ish intro this time for this one as you've already heard the first episode volume one if you haven't then rude i strongly recommend you listen as i continue my conversation with john this time about research for his two volumes of work mechanical advantage tools for the wild vertical for those of you that prefer the touch of a volume and i'm talking to you gym climbers you know how much you enjoy holding those volumes did you know that there are other types of volumes? The ones I'm actually talking about here are book volumes. You can get just as good a kick out of touching, reading and owning an actual book. These volumes are called Mechanical Advantage, Tools for the Wild Vertical, about climbing gear history, the evolution of climbing gear and designs that have shaped climbing as you know it today. Then, John reminds us of another use for his portaledge design, Rainforest Activism, awesome. If you head over to blurb.com, that's b-l-u-r-b.com, and then search for John Middendorf or Mechanical Advantage, you can find them both on there. Also, check out all of John's research on bigwallgear.com or have a look at bigwalls.net. I think both sites have a link to his research volumes as well. If you're not into that sort of thing, then go and check out the two websites anyway. It might just get you into it, and then you'll want to buy both volumes. John would really appreciate that. Go and check out his YouTube channel, which has his recent talk from his friends climbing gym in Flagstaff, Arizona, and lots of other videos he's done. And don't forget to check out the latest episode of the Run Out podcast with Andrew Bisharat and Chris Kalous. Maybe on that one, you can hear him properly. I've rambled on far too long now, even though I've said it would be a short intro. Just one more thing. I don't really like asking you lot for a favour. It would be really kind of you if you could rate and review my show on whichever platform you're using. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget about my merch. Once you get it, tag me on Instagram, at climbbookshelf, with a picture of you wearing or using it or with your other gear or whatever, and I'll mention you on the next episode. Thanks so much. So, here's Volume 2 of my chat with John Middendorf. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening.
1: So if it's okay, maybe we could move on to a bit of your research that you've been doing about past climbers. I noticed that you'd written an article in the American Alpine Journal about a particular guide by the name of Tita Piaz. Yeah. Perhaps you could expand on that a little and and what you've been finding out about him. I've heard him very recently, not just in uh, David Smart's book about Emilio Comici, He was mentioned quite a few times there, but also by a new podcast with christian beckwith uh it's called 90 pound rucksack it's about the american 10th mountain division and how they were involved in world war ii and how they started to shape american outdoor recreation and things like that um and his the the last episode that i came across that i listened to i think was episode two he mentioned him a couple of times it was just pure coincidence that we'd had a little chat about um this particular guy and he came up in in another podcast last week or something that I listened to. So he must be quite an important person to, well, yeah. find, out, to find out about.
2: Well, I think so. I, I think, it, you know, there really hadn't been anything written in English about Piaz, even though he wrote a book in Italian and it's been translated in German and French, I believe. And so in Europe, he's a, you know, he's definitely got a local legend, but there had never really anything been written in English about Piaz. But I guess that I, didn't start with people I, I, as, as you can tell I, I'm interested in gear in evolution and after I finished uh, doing all the portalites uh, development about 2020 it made me curious like how, did, how does this gear develop how does it evolve and how do techniques and tools uh, interlace throughout history and so I started looking into that and when I started climbing it was, it was basically like Otto Herzog invented carabiner uh, Hans Fleigl Invented the piton or sulfur invented the rappel, and you know like those climbers had done had kind of brought modern climbing. And so, but when I when I look back after reading T. J. Bells I mean he was climbing in 19, 1900 to nineteen ten. Turns out, I mean he developed all the modern techniques, right? <laughs> okay, I think of today, so, like he he was actually at the forefront of. The nice thing about doing this research now, and I, I've actually. Was working a lot with Christian. You mentioned Christian because we been yes. hearing all sorts of sources and, and trading notes. But when I when I read Chetupaz's T. book, I was like, wow! You know, not only did was he like one of the boldest free climbers of that early area. He also you know was doing hard, bold lead climbs and using pitons and sometimes bolts to set up climbs for his clients. And then he also pioneered things like the tension traverse in the Tyrolean, which he considered just a circus trick, but you know, of course the <laughs> Tyrolean is now, you know, standard climbing technique. And he really the first big wall climber, like the first technical big wall climber. when he did the Totenkirkel in the up in the wilder Kaiser.
1: Yeah, it's in Austria, it's, isn't it? It's
2: right on the isn't it on the border? Let's see I have my map in my Yeah, book. I think so, yeah. I have quite a few maps in my books. Back then it was all the Austro Hungarian Empire And he was a he was basically a Aladdin, who lived down south in the area that's now part of Italy. Uh, but back then, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But, uh, you know, he traveled up north to the to Potenkirkel, the and he was sort of a local legend already there. And he envisioned the line, and he was the first one to sort of say, okay, we can go up there, and then we can pendulum, we can tension traverse, to connect in with these other features. So that's uh, that's really a new technique, and that's 1906 that he did that. So that was really quite a breakthrough.
1: Nobody before then had ever thought of doing that.
2: Well, you know, I've researched it quite a bit, and there's really, I mean, it might have been done on a little crag or probably had been done on a crag, but that was the first time like a major test piece was
1: climbed. Not on that scale. Yes, I understand. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, it was really one of the first technical big walls. Thomasson ascent of Marmalada in 1901, probably first one of the first true big walls. And her stories amazing too. You know, she was kind of written out of history in the 1930s. Yeah. 30s. She was an incredible. You know, visionary really that saw these lines. So anyway, uh, back to Tita Piaz. He, you know, I just realized like, wow. You know, not only was he pioneering all this stuff, but he was really quite a talented climber. So it made me wonder about all these other aspects of history. Like, well, you know. What about when the first carabiner was used and developed Piton technique? And, you know, how do all these tools and techniques, you know, line up with history? And when you, when you look at, when you look at climbing, I think what's unique about my books, Mechanical Advantage Tools for the Wild Vertical, is when you look at climbing from a tool perspective, you get a whole different history out of it. You know, it's not necessarily the hardest or the, you know, the biggest number, but it's really about, um, you know who's being the most clever, uh, seeking out their vision for uh, inspiring climbs, really. Yes. Because the tools really do play into to how things can be climbed, and obviously, you know, during the same era, a lot of the big mountains were getting, you know, put up with with iron ladders, basically the ferrados. You know that. Okay. That, yeah. Sure. You know, at the same time, and so so climbing was sort of undergoing this this. Uh, Shift and like well, what's what's a good style? What's you know what are what do we want to do, do with this? And so Tito Piaz was one who used the tools, lightweight tools. Like he wasn't just going up there and just making ladders. He was strategically placing you know a piece of protection here or there to make these climbs sane, basically. And then you know also you know what i had read about Captain Mule Dasso for many years, and uh, and you know it was never quite clear whether the, the official report that you sometimes see in history books is that they used a couple bits for the And when you look at the old literature now, and by the way, I mean that's I think I was about to say this, it, the way this research was really facilitated was, I mean I, I can speak a bit of German, but with Google Translate and these journals online, you really just start delving in deep into the past history. Sure, yeah. And, and I think that's sort of was a real limitation for the historians who've written great books in the past, but they weren't really able to really delve into the nuances of of what was being published in the journals. So, but you know, so that eighteen that original route in, done in the nineteenth century in Campanile Basso, Paso that was actually quite a few Petons on that descent. But you know, so, so when you read about some some histories which say first Petons were invented in 1810, well, <laughs> there that. was in modern. <laughs> style, but I would call that modern style. They're climbing ground up. um,
1: you know, putting protection on the way and, and making yeah. it reasonable.
2: So that really goes back quite a ways.
1: So how how long has it taken you to research that, and is it still ongoing now? Well, I, I have two volumes out. It takes
2: it takes us up to the 40s and maybe early 50s. Uh, you know, the, this whole thing was started just because uh, I was talking to my friend Paul, and we were talking about working on the book together, and Paul Richards. Yeah. Okay, yep. We were thinking, like, what's the 10 biggest innovations in climbing? I think we were talking about Coeur and how they helped all these big climbs. Yes. And, and I'd written an article in 1999 for Ascent that was called Mechanical Advantage, and it was kind of a brief overview, and I thought, well, if we're going to work on this together, Paul, I, I need to research a little deeper. And so it just started out as a revision 20-page article I'd already written to what is now over 500 pages of (laughs) deep search. What I was doing is I was just researching it and then posting articles on bigwallgear.com. And then people were just asking me, well, put this into a book. And so I compiled all the articles I'd written on bigwallgear.com into two volumes. Um, And they're available from blurb.com. But, you know, mostly it's a, it's a it's a fresh perspective, I'd say, on climbing history. How tools and techniques have been developed. But there's a lot about the people, too, and the interesting aspects of the of the famous Hobarton climbing. Miriam perhaps, because you asked me about Marion O'Brien. And my understanding of her before I started reaching her was she a great free climber in the 20s, didn't like pitons because she wrote about pitons in the 50s. But when I started reading her book and, and reports about her and articles that she'd written, I realized, like, actually, she was really the first American climber and the best American climber doing bold, piton protected climbing back in the okay. 20s. And the only reason I could figure this all out was because i did written all the research on folks like Tita Piaz. And so I was becoming much more familiar with how these old routes in Europe were being done. And Miriam O'Brien was really, she climbed a lot in the East Coast and other places in North America, but mostly yeah. she was focused on climbing the hardest climbs in the Alps. She went to Chamonix and the Swiss Alps and the Dolomites. So I was familiar with the climbs that she'd been doing. I'm like, wow, well, those were all climbs that people were using pitons, innovating, you know, like new techniques with
1: bull yeah, sure.
2: climbing. And one of the challenges I think she, she was experiencing was well, basically in the twenties and thirties, you know, sort of a rise of fascism globally, and women were just having a hard time getting a foothold in the in, in the you know, climbing
1: world. Yeah, sure. There's a bit of a funny story when she climbed the Grepon. Yeah, um, there was like a funny quote that some guy obviously wouldn't go down at all today. Something about. It seems to have disappeared now that it's been done by two women alone. Yeah. Um because it so, used to be it used to be a very good climb. Yeah.
2: Well, wow, it's incredibly sexist back then. Oh, that.
1: absolutely. For
2: a few periods. And that's another interesting aside I think I, I have sort of uncovered a lot. Is my theory is like before World War One, climbing was very egalitarian. The top women climbers were climbing every bit as as challenging climbs as the men. Very egalitarian and and recognized so. You know, there was mutual respect. But in the 20s and 30s, I think it sort of reverted back to a little bit misogynistic kind of attitudes. Um, And uh, there were historians in the 30s who got us. I I talk about him a little bit in my book, too. He actively spent pages dismissing Thomason's ascent of Marmalada in nineteen (laughs) o one. Really, one of the most mind-blowing roots of that era. It should be in every history book, and And you still, there was National Geographic, great climbs there, and they have all sorts of climbs from before and after that, but it's sort of been lost. And so I think, you know, history is written by the victors, I guess. But uh, anyway, back to Miriam. So, yeah, I just discovered, like, wow, she really was one of the world's best climbers. And not only her, but there was a whole group of really talented women in the East Coast of the U.S. Okay. I think that in France they really recognize the French women climbers, but um, but Miriam's recognized. I mean, it's not like she was forgotten. She's always been of a sideline to her husband Robert Underhill, who who was a editor of the Appalachian Mountain Journal. But when you look at his experience versus her experience, I mean, she was just so much more talented climber, and uh, you know, I just think underestimated would be her than forgotten because when you look at her accomplishments, I mean. For sure. She was the Lynn Hill of the 1920s. People think know that, I think, but not only because how well she was climbing, but also just you know, how she was, her vision of what climbing could be. So I try to bring that out a little bit in my books. And
1: So your books that you've written, they're in two volumes, aren't they, I believe? Um, one is for European and one is for North American. Is that right? Mostly, yeah. I mean, I include
2: there was developments in Japan and other places that okay. I included, But Mostly, the volume one is really about like the emergence of tools like uh, carboners and pitons and how they were used and how these walls. It's really big wall focused in a way, but of course that was what climbing was uh, in that era too. Okay, and then volume two really is about mostly about North America. But for example, Conrad Kane, who did most of his um, so this kind of fame, I guess, would be in North America as a guide up in the in the Canadian Rockies. I mean, I, I cover 20, 30 pages of his incredible crimes that he did before he came to North America. And uh, that, also you know, so there is a lot of Europe also in volume two. But it's really about how the awareness of climbing developed over the decades, that, you know, established uh, the standards.
0: We'll now take a quick break and get back to the show after this ad. Are you tired of drinking your morning coffee out of boring plain mugs? Look no further than Climbing on the Bookshelf podcast mugs. The mugs are designed with the avid climber in mind. With the show's unique design, you can show off your love for climbing literature and the podcast at the same time. Whether you're sitting down and listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf, a pro climber, or just starting out, the mugs are a perfect addition to your collection of climbing gear. But wait! Are you looking for more ways to show your love of climbing for your favourite climbing literature podcast? Look no further than our exclusive Climbing on the Bookshelf unisex t-shirt. Not only does the unisex t-shirt look great with the show's logo, they're also incredibly comfortable to wear. The unisex t-shirt is perfect for any climbing activity, whether you're hiking to the crag or just lounging around waiting for your turn at the climbing gym to send your next proj. With different colours and sizes available, you'll look great even when you're sitting down and reading a mountain literature book of course. How about a Climbing on the Bookshelf tote bag? This is the perfect accessory for carrying some of your climbing gear. You can even use it for non-climbing related shopping outings too. But why would you do that? You could put your groceries in it, put a picnic in it, maybe even that new mountain literature book or guide that you've been hankering after in your local bookshop. So, if you're a fan of climbing literature and love listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf, don't wait any longer to get your hands on our exclusive Climbing on the Bookshelf mugs, unisex t-shirt and tote bag. Did you get the message that the t-shirt is unisex or did I overdo it a bit? Order now and show the world your love for climbing and your favourite climbing literature podcast. See the link in the show notes or head over to Instagram at climbbookshelf, where there's a link in the bio. Happy climbing and now back to the show.
1: So... Remind me again where you can get these books from.
2: Uh, well, I, I, as I said, I've compiled the... You can go to bigwallgear.com and read all the articles as I wrote them. I did do a lot of editing. I've compiled PDFs, and they're available to download for free at bigwalls.net. And okay. then a lot of people do want print versions, um, but they're on com. And if you just if you Google search John Middendorf, blurb yeah or you can google search blurb mechanical advantage and and the two books volume one and volume two will come
1: up fantastic and that's a print on demand service sure so, okay so you're not printing off like a hundred and then selling them and yeah they just print order right a
2: useful tool for researchers um and the pdf is easily searchable and you know what i just uh, when i was doing my research it was so much easier when i had a digital copy, I can search for Hawken and find out where the Pons are being used when. And so I've made this tool available. You know, I think researchers might find it useful
1: because I really have gone deep in a lot of areas. Fantastic. So, yeah. When you emailed me with the with the list of things that you're going to talk about, you say also said there's a little point here that I've got written down about how each generation of climbers create their own take, but manage yeah. to build in people from the past to their own styles so they're not forgotten
2: yeah I think I mean I, I think after you know reflecting after two years of researching this material I mean what, what I noticed is like each era basically you know for example the grade six was the big grade before World War two and you know each era sort of has its own heroes from the past but yet they're they're developing a whole new style you know where pitons were being used just for assurance to make sure if you fell, like basically as we use clean climbing gear today, you know, safely protect you if you fall or for a belay to these hard eight climbs in the in the dolomite. Each era kind of designs their own paradigms for what is valid. Doesn't forget the past, but kind of just remembers a few key moments, and which is very limited in my opinion. You know, like the the big picture is it's a progression. You know, you see that from the turn of the century to the 30s where were these big aid climbs where they're just like and then in the 50s where you know people are starting to even go more into aid and then back into the 70s when clean climbing and free climbing you know really becomes strong again and then of course in the eight, late 80s my you know era where ground up was pretty much like that was the way you climbed, that was the standard to climb to today's sort of top down you know Pre protect things and, yep. and work on incredible difficulty. So there's always some ultimate challenge. There's always some ultimate level of climbing in each era. But, you know, the style and the tools are obviously very, the level of climbing is dependent on the style and, and the level of tools. And what's accepted is actually interesting. Like what becomes like acceptable? I mean, of course, you know, if somebody started to grid bolt, you know, back in the, in the 70s that that wouldn't have been acceptable but now that kind of climbing is because you're looking for that kind of gymnastic difficulty but it, but it's it's almost circular you know you see these things come and go and, and try to envision what's next So at some point you know this the kind of standard climbing the sport climbing of today was superseded by some other type of climbing but it's really hard to imagine i don't think it's impossible yeah. like what will happen next but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that kind of common thread because, I mean, for me, when I, when I was witnessing the sort of demise of like ground up climbing as the highest form of climbing in the 80s, I, I just, I, at first I very, I was very disdainful of sport climbing. <laughs> but now, you know, I see how it, how it's become its, its own end and brought a lot more people into climbing and made it safer. So I just think that, uh, that wasn't the only time climbing's changed. It's gone through that kind of transition.
1: What are your thoughts and take on speed climbing? When I watched it at the Olympics I thought it would kind of change the way or change the way more people would view climbing. They'd think it was a bit of fun and yeah. might get people into climbing maybe.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I just I just feel like you know, when you saw Adam Andre up there climbing technically so well that not necessarily the best you know, he's a second behind the past climbers and then it cost him you know, a medal. I, I think that's a little bit, but the score—that's about the scoring system, I guess. that, that that's yeah. more But I guess uh, you know, speed climbing. It seems like it'd be more interesting, interesting to me if if the route was different, every time. like yeah. in this real world, because we used to love doing that—just going to a crag and setting up a top rope and Josh or something, timing ourselves to to see how fast we could climb things. Yeah, sure. It's definitely, but I think it's also a vestige of the Russian system where. That was a parameter of whether you would get sponsored to go on expeditions or not. It's how well you could do
1: these sort of standardized climbing tasks.
2: Because
1: yeah. so I, I think it's going to um, be its own thing in the Olympics next time, I, I believe. Oh, uh, that's, that's obviously better. Yeah. Because yeah. Because that, I mean, th- that three way climbing, the sport and the bouldering and that all combined was a, I mean, it, it was only a test, wasn't it? I guess, for that first Olympics. But I think they're going to do speed climbing separate. To the other two.
2: Yeah, I was, I was really sad to see Adam Andre not get a medal because he was a contender. He was like in second place, and then because of <laughs> his drop or whatever. But, you know, just sure. his attitude about the sport and how it just looked like he was having so much fun there. You know, you know I was really rooting for him. But that's <laughs> the way it goes, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. But that's another, you know, that's just another nuance of climbing that. <laughs> When you look at it from one perspective, I mean, every, every, because we have the technology just to put, you know, ladders up every climb, it's always just going to be an interesting way of creating limitations and you want, and how much,
1: you know, how much
2: technical ability do we want to focus on? So climbing is what it is at any one era, but it's always evolving and changing. And-
1: yeah. I guess the people from the past could probably, if they saw it now, they probably wouldn't think that it was, you know, how has it come on so much? Yeah. I again, at the same time again in the future, Yeah. we're going to think the same as well.
2: Yeah. Well, at the same time, you don't want to be that grumpy old guy. No. Oh, day, we
1: that's n- that's not the way we did it.
2: <laughs> I mean, all the crowds is probably the biggest downfall. You know, when, you, when you go to some of the climbing areas that used to be empty, there's a lot of people there. That's, uh, yes. It's more
1: defined. You. We'll take a little bit of adventure. And... Which may be why people do the big wall in remote places to get away from all that. Yeah. And they take your portal edge with them. Yeah. They always do. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. I think I've gone through everything that I've got written down. That I think I wanted to cover. Have you got anything else that I know you've got a slideshow coming up soon, haven't you? Yeah. Um, great well, warm up. And <laughs> in, on your website, you've got quite a few slideshows written down. Yeah. Um, from all over the world are you are you going to be showing all of those or is it just the one particular thing you're going to be concentrating on? Oh, no, I completely just
2: collected a bunch of random photos for this one. It's, it's like how I got started, but I'm trying to link in like how, why the why I wrote these books because the, the show is ostensibly about showing the books. But really, I guess when I realize when I look back, it's like, I've always just been really interested in the engineering, mechanical aspect behind it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love soloing. I probably soloed more yardage than any other type type of climbing in my time. But you know, you know it's, even that is like using the minimal amount of gear, chalk bag, and shoes to be efficient with moving on rock. So I'm trying to link in like how all these things I've tinkered with in my climbing career, and I'll also use them to accomplish new climbs, and uh, how that links in with you know, basically, why I'd be interested in in the history of tools and how they, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Because, because that
1: that will inform where it's going to go too. Yeah, sure, fantastic. I'm very conscious that we've we've been chatting for well over an hour now. I don't really want to take up any of your time. I mean, um,
2: so, that's good. I really appreciate it. It's been
1: really fun. Yeah, it's been great. It's been absolutely incredible. I, I, in a way, I can't believe I'm talking to. John Middendorf. I just, it's, it's unbelievable. I know we've been following each other for a little while. I don't know um, either on uh, Instagram or Twitter, actually. Twitter I don't actually use very often anymore. Uh, I think it's I think it's dying a death a bit now. Well, um, yeah, but I'll probably delete that too.
2: I, anytime I'm on social media, if I think if I get more than a few hundred people.
1: It's About what I get as well <laughs> at the moment. But
2: yeah, I just keep reading my social media here and there. but. Mm. Walls.net is
1: around, and I usually post any news or things so yeah up. so so yeah where where can people get hold of you but, if they want to follow you? well, Instagram down um, mid
2: four, but as I say that could be temporary, but big walls yeah. probably maintained um I guess one thing I would like to say is like yeah. I, I was making those hundred pornridges for climbers from two thousand seventeen to two thousand twenty but right now I, I don't really make any I, I still make a few like high tech ones, but I've been making sort of a disposable portal edge that's still strong, a little bit heavier for the Tarkine activists. So exactly. and you know where the forests are just incredibly beautiful, so unique these temperate rainforests, but yet there's just no awareness of what treasure they actually have, and they're they're basically getting shredded year after year. And in, in the next thirty years, they're going to just destroy all this incredible. Ecosystem, rainforest. So I've been building fortalages, working with them, and teaching activists how to build their own fortalages, so they can go up and and sit in a tree and protect it from bulldozers.
1: Yeah, fantastic.
2: Uh, and that's been really rewarding and fascinating. And I've also almost gotten arrested a few times. <laughs> mostly, I, I, I try to support the the activists who really are sure and really important. I think, and and of course, it's the same work everywhere where they're being. Called crazy greenies and everything, but when you see what if you actually go to these temperate rainforests in Tasmania, nobody could say, "Oh, this should just be turned into," you know, this. It'll, it's thousands of years of making those forests, and yep. in, in our lifetimes, our children's lifetimes, maybe great, 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 great grandchildren's lifetimes. But anyway, it's a plug for the
1: Tarkine rainforest. No, that's fine. It's fantastic. Thank you for that. It's yeah. something I I wouldn't have known that. Your portal edge design could be useful. I'd never even have thought of that side no. of it. Of, well,
2: here's the thing, you know, because I, I, I got to know the activists because I went up there and just saw how beautiful it was and met them protesting.
1: Yeah.
2: And they were using these big, giant plywood platforms to set up. And what they had to do sometimes was because these these coops are behind locked gates, sometimes they had to cut the locked gate to drive in, you know, to get these big, giant tree sits. And then you read the newspaper: vandals, you know, destroyed <laughs> property. You know, you know. So I was like, well, you don't need to cut the gate. We can just go in. And I, you know, I've been making cordages for twenty years. You know, they yeah. five kilos. Let's just use those. And so, and so, I got to know some of the activists and started supplying them, usually with my prototypes, and they were using them. And now, you know, that's, that's sort of a Tasmanian protest tool.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, like the go-to thing they use. Yeah.
2: Did they get a? Reason why we make them semi-disposable is because they get confiscated by the police, and then
1: but sure.
2: figure out how to use local tubing and make them for about hundred hundred twenty dollars each, and okay. uh, and people can and this one woman Taito who just spent seventy one days in one she made herself. Wow, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that's really been rewarding helping them figure out how to make safe, engineered for affordable, uh, yeah. you know, heavier like more heavy than you'd want on a big wall, but uh, yeah, like, sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you so <laughs> much. I really appreciate the
1: time. Thanks very much. I I really appreciate speaking to you and I was absolutely over the moon when you said, "Yeah, sure, I'm really looking forward to it." I was I was like, "Wow, John Middendorf, that's fantastic. Thank you." Oh,
2: yeah, this is great. I really appreciate it. So yeah,
1: I've, I've I've really enjoyed our chat. I've I've learned a lot. Thank you. Great. Well, hopefully I'll I'll see you in the southeast UK someday. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. If ever you're over there, then over here, then um, I'll try and meet up or something. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Okay. Tasmania, you're always welcome to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit too far of a commute, but yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Hope everything goes well with the slideshow and um, Grand Canyon.
2: I'll be rowing a boat for 19 days down the, in the Colorado River. I used to work as a guide, so but it's okay. been 20 years. So that's been. A, oh, that's amazing. Next week. We start, yes. Yeah, so oh, what fun that'll
1: be. That'll be incredible. With my whole family, two kids and my wife. And I hope it's, hope it's nice weather for you. Yeah, it'll be hot. Just take uh, a quick swim. That's all you need to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, thanks, do it. All right, thanks a lot.